On December 10th, 1914, around 5.30 p.m., a massive explosion erupted in West Orange, New Jersey. <clears throat> Ten buildings were lit ablaze uh, at a production plant owned by none other than Thomas Edison. Multiple fire departments rushed to the scene, uh, but the chemical-fueled inferno was too much to put out. The flames consumed uh, years of prototypes and, and priceless records, and the plant's insurance only covered a third of the damages, which the total damages were $23 million in today's currency. But that night, Thomas Edison did something incredible. According to a Reader's Digest article from 1961, Edison calmly walked over to where his uh, son Charles was standing, watching the fire uh, uh, burn down all of his work. And in a childlike voice, Edison told his son, go get your mother and all her friends. They're never going to see another fire like this in their life. <laughs> when Charles, his son, objected, Edison said, it's all right. We just got rid of a lot of rubbish. Later at the scene of the blaze, Edison was quoted saying, although I'm 67 years old, tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'll start from scratch. He was exhausted as he stayed there the rest of the night watching uh, the crews handle the chaos but he stuck to his word, and the very next morning, he woke up and went back to work rebuilding what was lost in not firing any of his employees. Talk about turning lemons into lemonade, right? Wouldn't you like to have the same sort of approach to the troubles and the chaos of your life? to have a sort of mental framework that allows you to step into your world burning down in front of your eyes and, and to warm your hands by the fire, create a lasting memory for a son. What does it look like? How do we cultivate that kind of resolve in our life? Because the reality is we have tribulation, <laughs> Just like those, those folks coming out of the great tribulation, dressed in white, right? We are going to have tribulation in our lives. Maybe not right at this moment, but maybe it's coming down the road. Or maybe for you, maybe it is right in this moment, in this season. Maybe you woke up today and it was a little tough coming here because you're in the midst of a trial or a tribulation. And it's hard to go out and hard to be in community, hard to put on that, that face because that's inevitable. Trouble is inevitable, but how do we face it and not succumb to it, not succumb to the defeat of it, or not just crumble and burn down with the rest of the ashes? Well, that, my friends, is what Psalm 46 is going to teach us today. Psalm 46 today gives us a clue as to how to have that same approach as, as Edison, how to kind of flip the script on what's happening in our life. And we see this because uh, the, the psalmist writing Psalm 46, he does it. Uh, the, the author of Psalm 46, he takes the language from those first three verses 
and he flips them. He transforms them. He, he puts them in a new light. Right? Last week with Aaron, we, we studied those first three verses that talked about the waters. The waters that were um, representative of chaos in the world. In fact, ancient people saw the waters, even the Sea of Galilee, as a place of utter chaos, something that could not be tamed or controlled. They thought the, the, uh, the gateway to the abyss was in that sea. And that's how the psalmist wrote, right? He said, the waters are, are roaring and foaming and swelling up over the mountains. And Aaron taught us that that's hyperbole, right? Hyperbolic language. Big language to say that anything in your life that swells up and roars up to you, this chaos, God is over that. But then we move into verse 4, and all of a sudden the waters aren't destroying anymore. Instead, the waters are gladdening, right? Psalm 46, verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The very image that was bringing chaos and destruction to the life of the psalmist is now bringing joy. And I was curious, this river, which river are we talking about? I don't know much about Jerusalem. Maybe you don't either. And I was kind of curious. He's talking about a river. What river is this? And so I did a little research, and I believe the psalmist is referring to something called the Spring of Gihon. So in Jerusalem, there's this spring called Gihon. I'll throw an image uh, on the screen for you. And a Gihon is Hebrew for surging or bubbling. And uh, uh, what this image will show you, what this uh, uh, pool does is it kind of bubbles up. So you can see it moving actively there. And this uh, water pools up, in, and uh, when it fills in this cavern, it surges forth. And it washes actually out down the hills of Jerusalem and into the uh, crops uh, where the farmers would use it to, to grow and bring life to their vegetation, their crops. And then in Hezekiah's reign, he was one of the kings of Israel, he actually took this spring, this river, and he tunneled it into the city. So there's actually a river that runs through Jerusalem, the city of God. And there's a couple more images that follow this. I'll show you a little bit of this tunnel. Archaeologists are still amazed by this feat. Centuries ago, these people tunneling through rock and earth and meeting at a central point. And if you keep flashing through these photos for us, you can see this kind of uh, cavernous tunnel that Hezekiah dug. Uh, the next image will show you the direction of this tunnel. So Hezekiah made this water pool up from the spring, which is at the top right, and he, he made it flow through the city. So when you're on your way to work, right, you're commuting to your job in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden you hear that spring of Gihon, those waters surging, bubbling, and flowing through the city. And it's nice to hear. It gladdens your day, right? Brightens your day. Even more than this, the, the tunnel, they dug it to end up down there at the bottom left. That's the uh, pool of Siloam. So these waters not only give uh, a life and growth to the vegetation, they're not only gladdening everyone's uh, days in the city, but they end up at a pool that was used for cleansing. It's actually the very pool that Jesus sent that blind man in John chapter 9 he sent him, he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And that blind man washed his eyes in that pool and walked away seeing. 
I was fascinated by this, this, this uh, tunnel of Hezekiah. Uh, and I'll share more about that in the email this week because there's, uh, there's some neat videos on it. But, but this is the river the psalmist is referring to. This water that's in the midst of the city of Jerusalem that's bringing it joy. It's gladdening the city. It's bringing life and growth. And it's cleansing and healing people in the city. But the psalmist goes on and he says, look, it's not just this river. A, a, a river doesn't do that on its own, right? It can't produce all of these things in your life. He says, it's not just a river who's in the city of God, but God is in the midst of her. God is this source of life. God is this one who brings joy and vitality, who cleanses. And so we have a bit of a dichotomy here. We have the God over the chaos, over the waters that are roaring and foaming, and yet we have a God who, I guess, has a soft side, you might say. He's got this river, streams of life, joy. But maybe that's not how you experience God. That's my wondering today. It's really easy to talk about God being a source of joy and gladdening the city and gladdening our lives and giving us life and light and salvation. But what happens if that's not your experience of God? And maybe today you say, Pastor, I, I don't really get that idea of God bringing joy. I, it's kind of hard to understand God gladdening my life. I get God surging and raging and being these, these forces of, of great strength and might and, and flooding, but I don't know about this river of life. And that's where this psalm becomes a test for us. And the question is, which mountain are you standing on? Which mountain are you standing on? Because it's not only a river that runs through uh, Jerusalem, but there's a mountain there, right? Mount Zion. That's where the, te the temple of God was, His holy habitation. And it's in that mountain that the rivers gladden the life of those who dwell there. But there are other mountains, other mountains that we stand on. What do I mean by this? I'm, I'm being very metaphorical. What I mean to say is, is you can build your life, you can stand on things that you think are giving you support, that are rival mountains to this mountain of God. So, for instance, you could look to your work as your mountain. Maybe work is the place where you feel the most yourself. You feel uh, gifted. You have an identity. You have purpose. Uh, maybe work is the thing that, that makes you feel uh, uh, confident in life because you're good at what you do. But then you hear the pastor talk about that third commandment, right? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And you say, wait a minute, I gotta, I gotta, I've been working all week. I, 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 I don't want to go to church now. I've got more stuff I've got to get done. I've got more projects I've got to do. And God, he seems like he's getting in the way. He's not bringing me joy or gladness. God seems to be putting barriers in my life. 
And you feel God kind of roaring and foaming. Say, I don't see how God gladdens life. It seems like God just has a bunch of rules I got to follow. Maybe, maybe for you, a mountain is a relationship. It could be someone you're dating. It could even be your spouse. It could even be a child. Maybe it's in that relationship that you find all your security. And you feel like when things in my relationship are good, then things in my life are good in a broad scale. But as soon as things in your relationship start to fracture, have difficulty, challenge, maybe you get in a fight with each other, or maybe the, the other person in that relationship just does things that kind of grate on you, they annoy you, and it wears you down, it really bums you out, you start to feel like, like your life is losing its value and its meaning because this relationship is suffering. And then, and then you start to wonder about God's involvement in all of this, and you think, well, shoot, maybe this is happening uh, because I've been far from God. Maybe this is happening uh, as some sort of punishment because I did something wrong, and, and, I, and God's trying to tell me I need to, to make it up, and then things will get better. And so when things start to fall apart in your life, you, you perceive it as God inflicting some sort of punishment on you. Again, those waters roaring and foaming. But maybe, maybe you're someone who says, no, wait a minute, pastor. <laughs> I don't feel distant from God or His house. I'm here every week, and I'm praying, pastor. I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible, and yet still, I, it seems like these waters are roaring and foaming in my life. You talk about him being peace, but I don't feel like I'm experiencing peace, and I don't understand why, because I'm doing all of the right things. And you realize that the mountain you're standing on might not be the mountain of your work or the mountain of a relationship, but it might be the mountain of yourself. Maybe you find yourself here week after week, but you don't know a thing about joy because you feel like you just have to be here. This is what I got to do, and if I do this, then I'll appease God and I'll get His good gifts, right? I'll get salvation. But the relationship is just one of, of appeasement. It's not one of joy. What mountain are you standing on? If you treat God that way, are you standing on His mountain or are you trying to make Him stand on yours? Is He the captain of your boat or are you trying to be the captain of your life? And this is why I wanted to reintroduce that gospel reading for us today because I find it so worthwhile to meditate on. When the storm came up for the disciples, Talked about this a lot last week, right? They're, they're panicking, they're, they're, they're worried, and Jesus is asleep, and he's tranquil. And he comes out and he calms the storm, right? And as soon as Jesus speaks, everything is calm, right? Everything except for the disciples. The disciples are still greatly fearing. It says they're trembling. They say, who is this? who can calm even the wind and the sea, and they're trembling because the hardest thing for us to do is to surrender 
to God and His will. We want to be the captain of our ships. We want to drive the course. We want, we want to pray and go to church and read the Bible so that God will give us the things that we want in our life. We're afraid to let Him have control because it doesn't feel like strength. It feels like weakness to let God have control. It doesn't feel like strength to give up or to surrender or to be still. It feels like a mistake. It just it goes against everything that's within us naturally. It doesn't sound maybe like Edison to you, Thomas Edison, when he showed up to that fire. Maybe it's hard to imagine him showing up there and thinking that he's coming in weakness. And maybe he wasn't. I know uh, that Edison was friends with Henry Ford, who actually gave him a sizable loan after all of his plants got burned up. So maybe he just knew he had resources and he was going to be fine. Maybe that's why he wasn't worried about it. Maybe his mountain was his connections to others. I don't know. But maybe you, you look at that and you say, yeah, see, Edison, Edison had all sorts of resources. I don't. Edison didn't show up in weakness. How can I? How can you expect me to show up in weakness to find strength? But I want to tell you that you have something greater than any other mountain that this world tries to offer you. You have this, the Scriptures, the very Word of God. And it's these Scriptures that tell us of God's strength of His ability to see us through to the other side. If we let Him take us to the other side, right? We're not the ones driving, not even our own lives. We get in the boat and Jesus says, I'm going to take you to the other side. And the Scriptures talk about this people Israel, who are always the downtrodden ones, right? Always the weak, the small. They were the slaves who, who were burst out of Egypt because of God's power. They were the small group amidst the large nations who, who with Gideon's army overcame the many thousands with 300. The Israelites, the ones with David, the young shepherd boy, taking down Goliath because they knew who fought for them. But isn't it interesting that when the psalmist sees the troubles in, the light, in his life, when he sees these waters roaring and foaming, that his mind goes to the temple, that his mind goes to the holy habitation of the Most High. I mean, that seems weak. That seems impractical. What does going to church and praying have to do with the real problems in my life? Well, the psalmist's mind goes there intuitively. But we know that it's the place of sacrifice, the temple, that has everything to do with why we can have strength and face storms with strength and with resolve. Because Jesus would come one day and He would be the fulfillment of the temple. Jesus would come one day and he would become the sacrifice. And that was the place where we see God's greatest capacity to turn what is dark, what is chaotic, what is messed up into beauty. 
where God was able to take a storm and turn it into something that gave life, where God took the cross and and, and turned it into a resurrection. He turned a grave into a garden. And that's not just hyperbole. That's history. That is what God accomplished for you in Jesus. And when we look to that mountain, to Jesus on Mount Golgotha, if you're one who feels like, like you're distant from God, and then he, he, he's, he, he's far away from you because you've been making bad decisions, living a life that he does not approve of, breaking the Sabbath or any of his other commandments, if you feel like he is drawing away from you, what if you are simply scaling whatever mountain you're on? Whatever other thing it is in this life that you're clinging to for identity and purpose, but actually God's waters are the waters that are roaring and foaming and surging up to you. Because when you see Jesus on the cross, you see Jesus taking your shame, taking your punishment. God isn't punishing you. Jesus took that for you. Why are you drawing away from God? He's not drawing away from you. He's moving in your direction. And if you're one who who feels like you've been doing everything right, that you've been following all the rules, and it's not bringing you any joy in your life, when you look to Jesus, you see the one who has accomplished it all for you. You do not have to save yourself. Christ has done it for you on the cross. When you read His Word, when you go to Him in prayer, you do it as a response to what He's already given you, already blessed you with. And when you look to Jesus, you see that even He clung to this principle that God can make our messes into something beautiful, into some path forward, that He can give us strength in our darkest moment. We sometimes uh, talk about Jesus' last words on the cross. They come from Psalm 22. It's called the cry of dereliction, where Jesus says, "Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the psalm doesn't end there. Jesus isn't just crying out in in some sort of hopeless anguish because God is so far from him. But Jesus is quoting a psalm, a psalm that continues this way. It says, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. When we seek other things in our life, we'll find those waters roaring and foaming. But these things don't happen to us because God is far from us. They happen to us because God is trying to draw us ever nearer to him. God has seen our affliction. He has heard our cries. 
And Jesus says, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. Jesus was afflicted on the cross, and yet He knew that God was going to come through for Him, that the cross wasn't the end. And now maybe you say, okay, well, that was Jesus, (laughs) but I'm me, all right? I'm not Edison. I'm not Jesus. I'm me. Hear these words from Jesus in John chapter 7. Jesus said once at a feast, He said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this He said about the Spirit. You all have a spring in you, the very Spirit of Jesus that wants to burst forth, that wants to to burst out into your life and will if we just stop damming it, if we stop taking rocks and boulders and shoving it on top of this spring. And even when we do, even when we cling to other things, God's waters still roar and foam. They still burst through. This is Jesus' promise to you. He says you are His holy habitation. He says His living waters are going to course through you in your veins, the waters of our baptism, our identity in Jesus. So be still. Surrender. Wherever that pain point is in your life, where you're feeling God is distant, that is where God is most near to you. Let Him into that spot. Be still surrender. If those waters roar and foam and overtake you, they will only take you in the flood of His love. Be still. There's an old hymn by John Newton that I'll end with today. Uh, John writes this in his hymn. He says, Begone, unbelief, My Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, and He will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Who's in your vessel? Whose mountain are you on? Be still and surrender to your rock, your mountain, Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we continue.